0: Hey, before we dive into the interview, I want to remind you that the submission deadline for issue 3 of the audio magazine is November 1st. The theme is Heroes. Essays must be no more than 2,000 words. Bear in mind this is an audio essay, so pay attention to how the words roll out of your mouth. Email your submissions with Heroes in the subject line to podcast at gmail.com. Hey, and I pay writers too. It's not a lot, but hey, you got to get that burrito money.
1: I stumbled onto Mr. X and then I was just hooked, you know, it's like, who is this guy? Where'd he come from? What's his story?
0: Well, hey, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? It's that Atavistian time of the month where we celebrate the blockbuster journalism that my bestie from another nesty, say we're Darby, develops. And since this Atavistian time is falling so close to the typical CNF Friday, we're just making this our featured podcast of the week, okay? If you want a great immersive story experience, beautifully designed, look no further than magazine.atavist.com. Consider subscribing. No, I don't get kickbacks of any kind. So you can subscribe to them knowing I'm not making... A happy buck. Other ways, like patreon.com slash cnfpod. Yes, that's how I can make a happy buck in this enterprise. But not through any kind of affiliate links. They make me feel slimy. So, Laura Todd Carnes. She spins a compelling yarn about a man in the late 1930s, Mr. X, who goes missing after losing his memory. His identity is discovered after several years, but is it the happy ending we all expect. Well, obviously not. You have to read the damn piece. Laura also is a novelist, and that comes through as the writing has that extra bit of crackle that you often get when a fiction writer swan-dives into the tar pit of nonfiction. I kid, I kid. And she had one line that I I really loved, and I pulled it out and I read it back to her, and it turns out Sayward, ugh, her, was the one who recommended it. I am...
1: so keeping that and I am also going to take full credit for it because that's freaking brilliant
0: I mean why does Sayward have to be so good at what she does it's annoying is what it is hey why wait CNFers first I chat with Sayward about searching for Mr. X the name of this piece and, and how the tone of this piece is a little bit of a departure from the past several ones we've highlighted on this little podcast that could so let's just go right into that All right.
2: It's such an interesting piece because there's a version of this story, I think, that, and I don't want to give things away, but there's a version of this story that would be strictly historical, right? And it would tell these kind of incredible events that happened between 1931 and 1938, ending on something of a a happy note, frankly. And the reason that we really worked to incorporate some of these personal elements and also this kind of reporting journey that the writer Laura Todd Carnes went on uh, in in working on the story is that in in truth, the ending wasn't as happy as it was made out to be at the time. And that was what she found the deeper she dug into the story. And so we just really felt like from the standpoint of, you know, truth, certainly, but then also just uh, dimensionality, we really wanted to, to, to tell the story to the the nth degree, right? And uh, and so what that means is that we we kind of go with Laura on this this journey of asking questions and finding answers, and in some cases not finding answers um, about this. You know, at the time, I think well known thing that happened um, of this man who had lost his memory going on a national radio show in in search of his family, and she 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 goes on a journey to find out what led him to that point and then also what happened after that point. I I find it really I'm a sucker for these kinds of historical mysteries. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, there what what's also great about it too is one of the uh it, well, Laura's great aunt uh I'm uh Ligan Smith Forbes. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the quote that Laura was able to remember or pull out from from how from what her grandmother said where Talking about Legan, she said she was a feminist divorcee, suffragette journalist, alcoholic lesb- lesbian rabble rouser. You would have loved her. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was the other thing I found really compelling about this story was, you know, you had this one just really fascinating character, this man who had lost his identity, had no memory of who he was. Uh, and then you had Laura's, like you say, great, great or great, great aunt, I guess. Great, great aunt. Who yeah. uh is just an incredibly rich character in her own right. Um, and you know, these two people's paths collided and uh, you know, led to this appearance on on the radio show and an outpouring afterward of, of people looking, you know, saying, Maybe this, maybe this man is is, you know, my loved one who's been missing for, you know, however many years or whatever. And then and then Ligan and the man uh you know. Each had their own trajectories after that, that are you know kind of interesting and, and tragic um, in an equal measure. Uh, but definitely that added layer of of ligon, uh, you know, made the story all the more appealing to me.
0: And When this story came across your desk, yeah, you know, what what stood out to you when you were yeah you know, when you saw this pitch?
2: Yeah, I think a couple of things. Um, I think first of all the fact that this historical. Uh, you know, narrative of this man being in a mental hospital, not having a memory, going on a radio show, asking to be found. And, you know, again, I don't want to give things away, but there was a very complete arc to it, um, which made for this, you know, uh, very intriguing story to me, where there was, you know, a pretty, a pretty firm outcome. Uh, and on top of that, there was this character of Ligan, who I found to be, uh, you know, remarkably interesting, But then it was in some ways like the ambiguity is beyond that, that also made it interesting. Like here was a situation in which the press in 1938 told a story um, that had a happy ending. And here we are press, you know, however many, almost 90 years later, and we are essentially like re-evaluating that story. Um, and so there was, I think a little bit of a meta quality to it that, uh, that as a journalist, I was really interested in. Um, and it raises all kinds of, you know, perplexing <laughs> thoughts about, you know, trusting historical documents and, um, you know, particularly historical press documents. So there was a lot that appealed to me. Um, I think, you know, as just a, a reader, which I like to, you know, think of myself as first when I'm, when I'm looking at pitches, but then also, you know, as a journalist and as an editor. And I was I was really interested, too, by the fact that Laura had initially written a novel about this, um, that when she uncovered this story um, of this man and how he was connected to her great, great aunt. Um, and I, I'm not a fiction writer, but I, you know, I certainly understand the impulse of, uh, you know, using fiction to kind of what does she say in the story? Patch over gaps um, and, you know, ima- allow allow yourself to imagine things that you can't, you know, find for sure or whatever. But then I think that the fact that writing that novel still left so much unanswered for her and incomplete for her, that she felt like there were things she wanted to know, things she wanted to try to know, things she really wanted to interrogate um, that only this kind of essay would allow her to do. So I guess this is a very long way of saying, you know, it was plot, it was character, it was themes. And then it was also, you know, kind of this idea of the only way to do this story justice is to tell it this way. Um, and so there was there was something about the imperative of form. I guess, uh, in it that I, that I found really, really interesting. And, you know, I I can imagine a world in which somebody, you know, reads this story and doesn't agree with its assessments of memory, um, and, you know, responsibility for memory and things like that. But I, I mean, I like stories that, you know, provoke, provoke me to think about those things and maybe to, you know, have discussions with people who disagree with me about those things. So.
0: What was the, the fun or the challenge of, coming up with the right structure to tell the story.
2: Yeah. Um so if I recall correctly, the first draft was pretty much bifurcated. It was like we're gonna tell the story as, you know, it was told in the press, basically, at the time. And then about halfway through we're gonna pivot to like a reevaluation through, you know, the lens of, of Laura's own reporting and writing. And what we, initially, it's actually funny, Laura and I, I had to apologize to her because I did my first edit of this story the week before I went on a much needed vacation. And I was like, yeah, totally. My brain's firing on all cylinders. And then I got back from vacation two weeks later and read through my edit and I was like, oh, I can do better than this.
0: <laughs>
2: so, um, so and, and it was great because I, I do, I actually think it you know, made for, for a better story, but we ended up working on a structure and the, the final structure is more interwoven between you know, the elements of history and kind of just telling a story straight through and then the elements uh, in which Laura is you know, kind of thinking out loud almost um, those more essayistic portions. And I actually think it balances the piece really nicely because you're almost toggling between forms in a way, as opposed to, you know, having it bifurcated, which sometimes that, you know, a bifurcation can work really well. But, um, but I think in this case uh, there's a more, I don't know, musical quality to it this way, but it was definitely one where I actually remember I was co-working with a friend who's also an editor and in these times, you know, that's what we do is co-work with maybe one other person. <laughs> and um, and I was kind of talking out loud about this piece um, and how it felt like a puzzle that I was really, or oh, not a puzzle, more of a riddle, frankly. It was not like, oh, the pieces are all here and I want to fit them together just so. It was more you know, okay, there's this thing here, and I, I feel like if I start to unravel it, it will it will grow. Um, and, you know, the, the ideas at the heart of it will will become clearer. And, uh, and it's actually really helpful to talk about it out loud. Um, I'm a big fan of talking out um, puzzles and, and riddles. And Laura actually said, and I love when writers do this, she also read the story out loud before we even put it into layout, um, because I think that can be so important to knowing, you know, is the structure working? Um, is the language working? So yeah,
0: big fan of talking it out. <laughs> nice. Well, it, yeah, it was a great, it was a great piece. And, and given what I've you know, read and what you've published over the last year, you, we've seen such a great swath of what it means to tell true stories in uh, always with that real eye to research and uh, a journalistic ethos, even behind something that does feel more, uh, more personal as this one does, but it's still got those great elements that you have come to expect when you read it, read an out of his piece. So this one yeah. was, a, was a joy and it's just great to see the whole body of work accumulate over the year. So this was no exception.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, I think for me, I always enjoy the challenge of a story that doesn't, um, you know, is not a hard boiled, like who done it, right? Like something where, yeah you you really need to tease out um, what is going to make the the arc of it work what's going to make you know make it feel propulsive um, and this is a perfect example of that um, and I really enjoyed working on it also Laura was just great and arguably the most enthusiastic writer I've ever worked with um, she was just so like excited the entire time which was really fun
0: <laughs> fantastic awesome well, say as always a pleasure and uh, yeah, I look forward to when we can, uh, we can do this again
2: thanks so much Brendan
0: Okay, so a little more about Laura. You can find her at lauratoddkarns.com. Did I say find her? Laura Do- at http colon slash slash Laura And give her a ping on Twitter at lauratoddkarns. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Electric Lit, and Flyaway Journal. Shorts fiction, essays, and wouldn't you know it, she dabbles a bit in narrative nonfiction. And a one, and a two, and a riff. Yeah,
1: I sort of stumbled on it. Um, It was completely by accident. I was trying to write a novel and it wasn't going well. And I, I was just sort of fumbling and I was going through like boxes of stuff because when you're procrastinating something that's difficult, you end up, you know, cleaning your house. And I found this notebook where I had taken notes, uh, interviewing my grandmother years and years ago in the late nineties. So this would have been nearly, you know, Oh my god, a really long time—like 25 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had these notes, and and I had always meant to like do this genealogy research and kind of look up some of the people that she had these great stories about. And I just kind of fell down a rabbit hole of doing. If you've ever done any genealogy research, it's sort of an endless—you <laughs> can just keep uncovering layers and uncovering layers. Mm-hmm. And I got fascinated by um, the things that I was finding, and particularly my grandmother's favorite aunt, Aunt Ligon, um, Ligan Smith Forbes, who's a, a main character in this piece. And um, I was really fascinated by her life story. She was a very unconventional woman. You know, she was a journalist and she was in advertising and, you know, the the early part of the 20th century in Mississippi, of all places. So... I became really fascinated by her story and in trying to learn more about her and her many careers and her sort of peripatetic life path, I stumbled onto Mr. X and then I was just hooked, you know, it's like, who is this guy? Where'd he come from? What's his story? Um, Yeah. And then I just kept digging.
0: So what became the next logical step for you as you come across Mr. X and start following him?
1: Yeah, I mean, once I had a sense of kind of what the arc of the, the story was, my, my first instinct was to fictionalize it. <laughs> because um, at the time, I really didn't consider myself, I considered myself a writer, but I did not consider myself a nonfiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'd been doing lots of that, I just didn't think of that as being like real writing like um, so I I was you know I was working on a novel that wasn't working and so I was like I know this is my novel this is what's gonna I'm gonna write a novel about these people and so I I wanted it to be as accurate as possible so I did tons of research I spent about a year doing research and then I wrote a novel based on the true story I knew that the novel I had sort of glossed over things. There was things that were sort of bugging me about the story. And in my fictional version, I just kind of like patched them up and made them all neat and tidy, which of course life isn't. And so that novel actually still hasn't sold. It's just, it's, it's, it's still out there in the ether. Um, it was, you know, I got an agent, it went on sub for two years. It, never, it just never sold. So that novel is still, you know, on my hard drive. And then I had the idea that like maybe the true story that, it, that I'd based my novel on was actually even more interesting. <laughs> and I started doing more and more research, and that's when I, I pitched it to Sayward at the Atavist.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in talking to people who dabble in fiction and nonfiction and what the calculus is, whether you choose to take a story into that novelistic realm where you can use your imagination to spackle over the holes that – verifiably true things just can't get into or you can't burrow into that hole or what makes it what makes it more compelling is a nonfiction piece so you know what 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 has been your experience with that that balancing act and that and the math of telling that uh story whether it be fiction or nonfiction
1: yeah i think i i'm actually really glad that i i had the time to sort of tell this story both ways (laughs) (laughs) because in a lot of ways i i think fiction can get closer at the truth. Um, There's a lot you can say in fiction because you can, you can fill in all the gaps and you can answer sort of the psychological questions of what motivated someone, you know, you can, you can imagine that you understand all of that interiority and in nonfiction, I mean, there's, there's just a distance, right? Like you can, you can only ever know so much. And that's what, kind of ended up shaping a lot of this piece was was ha- the distance between what you can know and what we'll never know because, it, you know, it died with these people.
0: Yeah, on your website, you write, as, as a freelance journalist, uh, she is particularly interested in health, mental health, parenting, family, and history. She is hungry for projects that require deep archival research. I read that and I'm like, wow, this Mr. X story checked just about all those boxes.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, for, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm really happiest when I'm in a library. Um, so I, I I live near DC, so I actually have spent a fair amount of time at the Library of Congress doing research for things, which is one of my favorite places to be. Um, for this story, I actually spent a couple days at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History in Jackson, which is probably my second favorite library they're so great there they and they have everything and they're so helpful but anyway yeah if I can go like digging through a box of like correspondence from the 1940s like that is my jam that is like that is a good time yeah so um and I'm also really I mean I'm really interested in health and mental health and those are some of the stuff that I you know write for freelance stuff but my my mom was um a clinical psychologist uh, for in her career or a clinical social worker, but she, she did sort of therapy and stuff when she was doing her clinical training, she worked in an institution, not too dissimilar from the hospital where um, Mr. X spent so many years. Um, And so like, I kind of had this idea of what an institution was in my head. Um, And I think there's, you know, the idea of being institutionalized as has a certain, meaning in our culture. And it was really interesting to dig into, you know, what that actually meant at this particular moment in time, which was this very strange sort of era of mental health care that was kind of between two, you know, between the, the asylums of the 19th century and the sort of post institutionalization and pharmacology of mental health care from the 1950s onward, there's this kind of moment where um, there wasn't a whole lot that they could do for their patients, but they also respected their patients as human beings. And this is sort of when Mr. X has his has his interaction with the mental health care system.
0: Yeah, because you you had written that I, this would have been, I guess, probably in the 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 trends beforehand, where you wrote, over the previous century, patients in mental hospitals were often written off as subhuman and kept in barbaric conditions. But by the 1940s, mental health care began shifting towards treatment models. So he was kind of caught up in a watershed moment, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a sort of strange in-between time. And and um, the Mississippi State Hospital at Whitfield was a place where part of the model was patients worked like they if they were able like they worked on the there was a farm that fed the patients and staff and there was uh you know an occupational therapy workshop where they actually made things for sale and uh, mr x worked in the greenhouse um and the greenhouse supplied fresh flowers to all of the buildings on the campus and stuff like that so he had like a purpose I and mean, in addition to being institutionalized because he didn't know who he was. So he couldn't be returned to his family. Other than that, he had nothing wrong with him um, per se. So um, he just sort of lived in this community and the community was set up to try to give people some meaning and purpose and joy in their lives. There were dances and concerts and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of crazy to think about because it's not sort of how we how we conceptualize um being locked away in a mental hospital.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm almost picturing what it would be like now to be if you were to go to therapy and part of it was we're going to go out in the garden and you're going to get your hands dirty and you're going to just play around with the flowers and make and make a bouquet and that's going to be part of this uh, green cleaning by getting outside. And we all know how invigorating just being out in the sun can be like, and that's part of, you know, a treatment plan. Let's get you away from computers and get you out into nature.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there was obviously a lot of stuff that they didn't understand about mental health care at the time. And um, I I don't want to try to paint it as some sort of idyllic you know, it was also a segregated campus. It was very much in the Jim Crow South. Like there was a lot that, um, you know, it has to answer for, but at the same time, there were certain things that they had kind of figured out that, you know, giving people some sort of a purpose to their days could really be helpful um, to people's mental health.
0: Now, as you're doing your research on this piece and you're trying to synthesize it in a way that is satisfying in terms of hitting those story beats and the structure Uh, what were the challenges that you faced in trying to string this story along in a way that kind of had this sort of braided thing between your you know your great aunt and Mr. X and the 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 mental health thread like you know what were those challenges for you?
1: Yeah, that was something that um, Saber helped with a lot because I think my first draft was, first of all, far too long. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because when you do a lot of archival research, you get really excited about every little detail that you uncover. And you want (laughs) to like, let me give you two pages on like the exact history of this mental hospital and how it came to be. Like nobody cares. Um, So yeah, so it was was far too long, but also... um, like we restructured the piece, I don't know, four or five times where we just took it all apart. And then what if we rearranged it this way? Wait, no, let's try it this way. <laughs> and so, and then each time having to kind of rebraid around it, you know, to make the pieces make sense. But I think it was one of those pieces that it, you couldn't figure out how it was going to come together until you had a, a draft to work with. And then you start teasing out the threads of... Well, there's kind of this story of like up until his identification and then there's sort of this second story of you think that that's the happy ending and then there's this sort of whole uh, continuation of the arc.
0: Yeah, I, I love that idea of it's very much like musicians in the studio with a producer and it's just like, okay, you're bringing, you know, these riffs or these solos to the to the project and you're like, all right that part looks kind of good well what if you did this and this and that and that and the other and you like you said you you know you had to bring at least this initial draft and then it's like okay let's move this part here and this part here and let's okay then we'll hit play and see how it see how it works And okay oh that still doesn't feel right let's try this so i i love that collaborative uh, approach of just trying to trying out different things and if it fails great you're you're still a step closer to something that is the best ideal for for the piece
1: Absolutely. I actually, I love that analogy with a record producer. Cause um, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's sort of like, okay, I, here's my raw material. Here's like, here's what I've got to work with. Um, but uh, it's so helpful to have somebody um, kind of help you help you shape it and to be able to see what it is. Cause I think, you know, this is a story that I Let's see. It was January of 2017 that I first uh, started researching this. So, um, I mean, it's nearly five years ago, right? Like, so um, I've been kind of down in the weeds in this story for a long time. And sometimes you need somebody else's perspective to kind of help identify what you have.
0: Yeah, it's so it's so. In- Incredibly important to at that point, especially when you like when you say when you're in the weeds like you are that you can no longer see you can't see anything anymore, and you need those fresh eyes to see the things you can't see. And then all of a sudden things start flopping off. You're like, oh, okay, this is this is what it is. Now we just need to put some heat underneath it and reduce this a bit more, and then like bam, we've got something that's really flavorful here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the the way the Atavist mm-hmm. works is is really different from, uh, any place else I've written for, but it's, it is a really collaborative process. Um, and from the first time that like Sayward and I talked on the phone, like, she was like, okay, okay, wait, I, I got all these thoughts in my head. You know, she was, she was already like kind of brainstorming, like, wait, what if we went in this direction? What if you talked to this kind of person? You know, um, and like she was getting excited about it. And I was like, okay, I think I, I think I got her. Cause <laughs> I just need her to be as excited about this as I am. But then all along the way, um, you know, we're kind of going back and forth with like early drafts and stuff. And then once once you're kind of in the production process, you know, there's, you know, the art director and the fat checker, and you know, like everybody that it's there's like a team that's kind of helping to get this thing to the finish line. And I've I've never been part of that kind of process before, but it was so thrilling.
0: You're right also that hope distorted becomes desperation. And I thought that was just such a, a wonderful short little preamble to a, a, a paragraph that you had written and, you know, given around the identity and trying to find the identity of Mr. X. It was just like, oh, I, I wonder what, you know, how you arrive at a line like that and how, you know, you know what's the charge behind that? Because it was just so potent when I came across it.
1: Okay. So I I am totally going to out say word here. Uh, So we, we were going back and forth with stuff and um, she like dropped that line into a draft. And I was like, I am so keeping that and I am also going to take full credit for it because that's freaking brilliant. Um, but but now now that you say it, I can't I, I can't in good conscience. Anyway, no, that was totally Sayworth's line. And I was like, that's exactly what I was trying to say. But I, it was really she was rewording something that I had said much more awkwardly. Um, that's but I. Yeah, <laughs> no, but I totally like, I could have just been like, yeah, you're right. That's a really great line. And I totally came up with that, but no, I can't, I can't. Um, no, she's, uh, she's brilliant. Um, so that was totally sayward. Um, but I think it was a, it was a thought that we were getting to in our conversations back and forth. Like what are we really trying to, you know? Um, Cause I think that was one of the key kind of emotional threads of the piece is about, you know, about hope and what, what that can do to people when it gets sort of um, stretched out that way.
0: And the way that, let's say like a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan is obsessed with time, you know, say what you will about the mo- his movies, if you like him or not, or, or not. I, I tend to like his movies as they're fun. Um, you know, but I, I got a sense that, you know, memory was a big thing for you in this piece. And not that I've read an extensive amount of your work, but I, I wonder if, Memory and and that kind of connection or or theme is something that you find pulses throughout uh, throughout your body of work.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with um, with memory and like misremembering things. Like I think that's really fascinating. Um, but I'm also really fascinated with family mythology and the mm. kinds of stories that get handed down. Um, And how that the stories that you kind of choose to hand down as part of a kind of a family culture. So, like, I wouldn't have even known any of this. I would never have had access to this story. I would never have gone looking for this crazy great aunt of mine if it weren't for my grandmother specifically telling me about her. And, and my grandmother kind of making the choice as this is, this is one of the values that I'm trying to pass on is that we, you know, I had this aunt and she was really unconventional and she was divorced and she was an alcoholic and she was kind of a mess in a lot of ways, but she also accomplished so much in her career. And she did all these very exciting, adventurous things for a woman in early 20th century Mississippi. And that by telling that story, my grandmother kind of created like, okay, this is, these are one of the values that I'm trying to pass on to you, you know, as one woman to another within this family. And I'm really fascinated by that, that kind of mythology that gets created. And that some of those stories may be a little bit apocryphal, right? Like they, <laughs> you're choosing certain elements to create, you know, that when, myth is never true, right? Like the, the, it's, you have to kind of file away some of the, <laughs> the messy edges to get something that, you know, it becomes folklore. But I thought that's sort of what happened with the Mr. X story as well, is that when the media kind of jumped on uh, Mr. X's story, And he was being um, brought onto this radio program in New York. And his picture was in Time Magazine. And there was, you know, all this kind of press interest. They kind of distilled the story into something that was probably not quite true. It was a little more melodramatic than, you know, the actual story. And that when he was identified, then they, they really like glommed on. Okay, great. Look, we've got a happy ending. We can just slap a rubber stamp on this and everybody can you know go home from the matinee or whatever (laughs) um with a satisfied feeling of completion and and of course like that's that's not what happened at all and and that dissonance between sort of mythology and and real life the messiness of real life is is really interesting to me
0: yeah, when you write about your great aunt, you said she, you already alluded to this, she defied convention. You also write that, you know, she had built a life for herself outside of the models she was offered. And she was everything I aspired to be. So in in what ways did has she set this kind of model? And in what ways are you aspiring to be, you know, try to cut yourself in the mold of her?
1: Yeah, I mean, at at the time that I, was first sort of told these stories, like I was, you know, in my, I guess, mid 20s, and I was already a single mom, I became a mom when I was 18. So I was already kind of a black sheep. And I was already defying convention, like, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty, (laughs) as soon as I became an adult. So, so yeah, and the the, another thing about her that I've also like really glommed onto is um, she had like, Eight different careers. Like she, she was always changing jobs, but she wasn't just changing like jobs. She was changing like from being an insurance saleswoman to being like doing advertising for newspapers, and then you know also like owning a printing press, and then also teaching kindergarten. And like <laughs> she just, she just sort of bounced around between a lot of different things. And I think part of that may just have been she was restless, or you know she took whatever opportunity was available. It's it's always kind of reassuring for me because I think I'm on career number five at this point or something like that. I lost count. But um but I her restlessness, I like to imagine that it was in part because there are so many very interesting things to do in the world <laughs> and you gotta try all of them, you know? And and that that kind of appetite for life is something that I try to espouse.
0: So if if we're just uh, a saying that you're on career number five. What were, <laughs> what were four of the the previous four?
1: <laughs> Let's see. I've been um, I've been a middle school English teacher. I have been an IT consultant. So um, you know, I was I was the person coming and climbing under your desk to fix your printer cables or whatever. Um, <laughs> I I've done technical writing for economic development. Organizations. Um, I've worked for nonprofits. Yeah. Oh, I, I had a fun little uh, <laughs> stint for a while writing the reading passages on like state standardized tests. Hmm. You know, when you have to like read a passage about fireflies and then answer five questions. Like, yeah, I got to write the thing.
0: <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was pretty fun. That actually taught me quite a lot about writing.
0: Wow. Nice. Nice. And so you've got, You you know this piece. This piece will be out by the time people hear hear this. So, uh, in in what ways is this this piece putting a a certain degree of fuel in your tank to uh, tackle the next story, whether that be fiction or nonfiction?
1: Um, I'm always writing fiction, so that that's just sort of like an engine that churns along. (laughs) Um, I'm working on my third novel, uh, and and my second because um, I parted ways with my agent. But anyway, um, but nonfiction wise, I um, within this story, there are so many different side paths that I didn't even get a chance to get into because they weren't really part of this narrative arc. But I definitely want to do another uh, deep dive into history kind of story that um, has me spending a lot of time in the library and then trying to find something that has some resonance for today, you know, that can tell us something about the world we're living in today by illuminating something from the past that we might not be aware of.
0: Is there a, a target decade you have in mind for that?
1: I I really dig the early 20th century. I mm-hmm. is there's something about that that time. It's like close enough, but it's so far away when you think about just the differences in societal norms and access to technology and all kinds of things
0: well that's great well well laura it was great talking to you about about this uh incredible piece that you wrote and i I can't wait to dig into more of your body of work as it comes out so this was wonderful to get a get a primer on on what it is you do and i'm so glad we got to have this conversation
1: thanks so much brendan it was so fun
0: Thanks to Laura and Sayward for the time and the work. If you enjoyed this little ditty, consider heading to Apple Podcasts and leave a kind review, or, or hell, you know what, just maybe a not kind review of the podcast. I mean, kind ones work better, but you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you what to do. When you're a middling writer and podcaster like me, and I suspect there's a chunklet of you out there too who are, you know, those people in the in the middle, not the main headliners of the festival. You know who you are you know that we live and die by reviews. I always read new ones on the pod, so if you have a few moments, heck, while the water's boiling for your coffee or your tea, by all means, leave a review. Kind ones preferred. You can also head over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for my up to 11 monthly newsletter. 11 cool things from my brain to your inbox. Been doing it for about a decade. I put in uh, a link to an exclusive CNF and happy hour that we tip- typically happens the second Wednesday of the month. Last month, we did a writing group where we just wrote for an hour, and that was it. This month, I might just make it a happy hour again on a theme where we talk and hash a few things out. You'll just have to subscribe to the newsletter to find out. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Keep the conversation going on Instagram at Creative Nonfiction Podcast and Twitter at Pod, and or at Brendan O'Mara. That's going to do it. I typically have a parting shot where I just riff about something that's on my brain. In all honesty, I kind of burned out and just don't feel like doing that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. We'll be back at it again next week. So in the meantime, stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do interview. See ya.